multiple things are, are going on this weekend. And, um, and as John said earlier, we are just very grateful that you're here to celebrate our, our 25th year anniversary. Uh, we're especially happy that uh, Glenn and Diana, uh, Glenn is our pastor emeritus, one of the founding pastors of this church. He is the man who led this church to go from independent status and to join with the Evangelical Presbyterian uh, Church denomination, and, and that's been a great blessing uh, for us, and, and so we just couldn't be more grateful uh, for the Francis's and for their, uh, all of their labor and the legacy uh, that they have left. Along with that, I mean, we, we've barely even mentioned um, uh, the 20th anniversary of, of 9-11, which is also taking place this weekend. And, and we're just um, uh, mindful of uh, the rest of the country that is also grieving um, and remembering uh, those events, those very tragic events that took place on 9-11. Uh, it's one of those events that if you were alive, and increasingly there are a number of people who were not or don't remember, um, but, if, but it's one of those events, if you were alive, you know where you were when you first learned of these planes um, uh, attacking these, the buildings and, and just being confused about what was happening. And, and, um, but it has had a great impact on the, uh, the culture of our country. But we are celebrating the 25 years, and, and, and there will be a little bit of uh, a chance to speak um, as part of our luncheon down at the other uh, end of our property. Um, but I can say we are grateful for what the Lord has done. We're, we're grateful for the people the Lord has uh, sent out from us in ministry. We're grateful for our children who have been raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and continue to serve the Lord. We are um, grateful, and I am grateful, you know, for me, one of the, the, the most, the greatest things about the church is you. <laughs> it's the people that God has brought um, to this church, and, and as part of that um, celebration video, you, you just you heard just a little bit of, uh, of gratitude for the way the Lord has just supplied the needs of this church through the people of this church. And God hasn't just sent these like, you know, lightning bolts of provision. He, he sends people, people who are willing to sacrifice of their time, of their skills and talent and money. And, and, um, and this church, I, I really believe, has had an outsized impact on the, the community around us uh, because of the people within this church, uh, in terms of their involvement with local organizations, in terms of the service and the surrounding community, just in terms of the service to one another, you know, just meeting the needs of those within this congregation. It's really been um, beautiful, and, it, and it's the Lord working in and through you. And so just very grateful uh, for each of you, and grateful for those who over the course of 25 years, for whatever reason, have moved on um, or have passed away. And, and our heart grieves the loss of the saints, <laughs> those who've gone before us. And, and this last year has been brutal in that regard, in terms of just the, the loss of, uh, of just beloved brothers and sisters from this congregation. And we remember them, and we salute them, and we just say we are grateful uh, for their lives and, and the impact that they have had on us. Well, this morning we're turning, um, with a time that I have, to Psalm 25. Now, 
given that this is our 25th anniversary, I thought, you know, I'm going to take a look at Psalm 25 <laughs> and see if I can, you know, if this is a psalm that would be appropriate for the occasion. And as I was reading it, I was just really um, uh, taken by the wisdom of this psalm, that th- this is, in fact, a prayer for God's church, that it is a prayer uh, uh, for ECC, for uh, the local church, and, and, um, and it gives us just this wonderful encouragement, um, uh, even when we're surrounded by troubles, uh, that our trust needs to be in the Lord. So I'm going to invite you to stand as I read Psalm 25, and it's uh, 1 through 22. And this is a psalm of David, and he writes, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Would you pray with me? Our great God, let your mercy come to us that we may live, for your word is our delight. Let those who fear you turn to the teachers of your word that they may know your testimonies. And may our hearts be blameless in applying your word, especially the command to repent and to have faith in Jesus Christ that we might not be put to shame at the glorious coming of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) 
We are told that this is a psalm of David. Um, We don't know anything more than this uh, in terms of when it was written. Um, One other thing that we do know, though, is that he writes in a time of trouble. And he expresses on behalf of the church, and, and he refers to this prayer to Israel at the end, that Israel would put their trust in the Lord. He, he's showing us that this, this prayer that flows out of his own heart is actually a prayer that's also meant for the people of God. It's meant uh, not just for the individual, uh, but for the people, and, and in our case, it's for the church, uh, uh, universal And what David shows us is the posture uh, that we need to begin each and every day. It's a posture of trust, trust in the Lord in the midst of strong opposition. The the psalm begins, um, well, it begins with this little note of trust. But I want to highlight that the psalm is written just in this context where the writer, David, is overwhelmed um, by challenges, by crises, uh, by uh, troubles around him. He, he just announces this in verse 2, where he, he refers to his enemies. Let not my enemies exult over me. And he, at the end of the psalm, he begins to highlight some of the troubles uh, that he has in mind. He says, he describes himself as being lonely, afflicted. The troubles of his heart are enlarged. That is, because of the things that are taking place around him and inside of him, uh, he's struggling with anxiety. He's struggling with stress. He feels the pressure of life. He feels like, you know, the, 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 the troubles and the, and the challenges around him are crashing in upon him. So he prays, bring me out of my distresses. You can feel just this emotional heart of of reaching out for the Lord's help. He talks about his affliction in his trouble, verse 16. And then he says, not only are are these troubles on the outside, but he's even struggling with his own self-doubt. He's struggling with his own worthiness because of his own failures, his own moral failures, his own sins, where he says, and forgive all my sins. He describes himself as having many foes, and that with a violent hatred, they hate him. This is a psalm that is kind of written out of the crucible of facing all kinds of troubles. He doesn't announce them, and that's the way of the psalms. They don't always go into specific details about the the exact nature. He doesn't name names. Uh, And this is so that all those who read the Psalms can begin to to think about maybe they're in in a time, they're in a situation where they too are facing troubles, where they feel the threats of life crowding in on them, and they feel the anxiety welling up within them. Well, this is a Psalm for you. And it's also a psalm for God's people. It's a psalm for the corporate people of God, for the church. Today, we, we think about uh, the troubles uh, that we are, are facing um, all around us. We think about the, the troubles of, uh, well, just uh, we are in the middle of a cultural revolution. There's just no other way to put that. Um, we see the signs of the, the cultural revolution and attack on 
uh, authority, attack on tradition, attack on institutions. These attacks usually are very good at leveling, or they're good at attacking, trying to bring down, but they're not good at, re- at building up. They can tear down, they can't bear, uh, build up. I, w- I was reading um, a book, and I don't even remember the author's name, but he was referring to a, a, a social, um, a sociologist uh, by the name of Philip Reef, and, and the sociologist was describing our culture. Now, now Reef was reading, uh, writing uh, in the 80s and 90s, but what he, he was describing has really come to fruition. And what he was describing in terms of this kind of cultural revolution that we're experiencing is he describes it as moving from what he describes as a second culture uh, to a third culture. And, and he's talking in terms of our, our, um, uh, the heart of what is it that um, creates, that uh, continues to motivate a culture. And so if, uh, basically a, a second world culture he describes as the culture of faith. First world, he was thinking of paganism. Um, the pagan cultures where they had an understanding of the gods. They, they had an understanding that there was something that was immaterial outside of the world. And, 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 and often they had this view of fate that, that the world was controlled by. In a second world culture, this is the culture of, of, of faith. This is the culture where, especially in the West, Christianity has been the dominant influence and in this second world culture, um, it's not fate that controls, it's a personal God. And in fact, the morality of this culture, of a second world culture, is defined by that which we cannot see. It's defined, in fact, by God himself. It's defined by the character of God. And the character of God sets both what is morally honorable alongside of those things that we need to resist, the immoralities um, of life and of culture. And all of this, that culture takes its cues. It takes its direction from the transcendent. It takes its cues from God who is outside of us and communicates himself through the word and through institutions, uh, most importantly, that being the church. What Reef says is that as we move from a second culture to a third culture, um, in a third culture, um, all you have is the material world. In a third culture, we are cut off from the transcendent. We are cut off from God. And we are cut off then from all that we would know about morality that would ordinarily flow from the transcendent, that would flow from our knowledge and understanding of God. So what is left? Well, in a materialistic world where there is really no true spirit and there's no God, all you are left with are ourselves. All you are left with are human reasoning and human uh, uh, feeling and emotions. And so now the arbiter of truth becomes the self. The arbiter of truth becomes our own feelings, our own emotions. And the point that Reef was making is that in that culture, it cannot continue um, with that basis because it's only as stable as each individual self, our own emotions, our own limited way of understanding and thinking. It's only as stable as that. 
And the result of this is, is we then have this cultural revolution. We have a redefinition of uh, gender, redefinitions of marriage, redefinitions of uh, what's acceptable and what is not acceptable, um, and all of this flowing from the self. It's kind of what Judges describes when the people did what was right in their own eyes. And, and that's this revolution that we're experiencing. And historically speaking, this is not the usual this is more along the lines of if you lived during the, the 60s or know about the 60s and early 70s, and you remember that social and cultural revolution that took place then, that is what is happening now. And as Christians, we, we, we're confused. We feel like we're being spun around, and we feel ourselves um, to be surrounded by change, uncertain change. Um, we feel ourselves to be surrounded by troubles. Now, add to all of that, COVID. <laughs> it just gets worse and worse. What David is describing in Psalm 25, we can identify with. We are living in a time of unusual circumstances and troubles. And so David continues, and, and so I'm, I'm moving in kind of four parts along this sermon. The first part is, is that David says, what's his initial response? Well, the initial response then is trust. He announces this right away. This is the way the psalm begins and, and really how it, it ends. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. What do you do when you're surrounded by troubles? challenges, whether it's individual or corporate, well, we lift up our souls to the Lord. We, t- we remind ourselves, yes, there is a God. <laughs> yes, we are not left alone. Um, and, and this God is a personal God, and he is a God who calls us to place our trust in him. And that's the first step. And, and this trust is something that, that David is couching in terms of prayer, what do you do? Well, the very first instinct of the, of the believer ought to be to go to the Lord, to recognize that the Lord alone is where we find our solutions to whatever troubles uh, we may be facing. But not only does the church need to make God their trust, not only do individuals need to make God their trust, we need to be encouraged to do this. And the way we're encouraged to do this is by understanding and knowing who God is. By understanding and knowing who this God that we believe in, what he is like, and why we are invited, why we're invited with confidence to place our trust in him. We need God's guidance. We need his instruction. We need God's truth. And so David... um, uh, begins with prayer, but this isn't where he ends. He also knows he will, in fact, have to act. He's surrounded by challenges. He has to act. But how? In what direction? This is a huge question, especially when new kinds of challenges present themselves. David needs God to give him wisdom. David desires to act, not according to the voices that are likely striving to gain a hearing with him, often voices that are uh, uh, mutually contradictory, 
but he needs to hear the voice of God. He needs to be led by God's will and God's truth. And so this is where he moves next in this kind of second movement within the psalm, beginning in verse 4. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. David recognizes he needs to know the wisdom. He needs to know the truth of God. James, um, and the letter to the, uh, uh, written by James, um, James addresses this very issue when he writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Like David's time, the church is faced, uh, again, with these extremely complex challenges. And, and David's telling us that when we pray, that part of our prayers need to be for wisdom. It needs to be for the ability to discern, to recognize what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. And <laughs> David would also plead with people uh, that he is serving or reign, uh, reigning with, pray for me. <laughs> And, and this is just a plea for the, the church leaders, for myself. If you're not praying for your pastor, if you're not praying for the elders and the officers of the church, if you're not praying for the staff, please, this is a time we need your prayers. I know we all need the prayers for God's wisdom, of course, but, but especially in a time like this. David tells us that this pursuit of wisdom begins with a knowledge of first things. It begins with who God is and what he is like. It begins with understanding and knowing the Lord. And some of the attributes that David highlights, in beginning in verse 6, remember your mercy, O Lord. Remember your steadfast love. What is God like? The God that we worship, the God who stands outside of, of time and space, who, who stands outside of us. Well, this is a God of mercy. He delights in not giving to us often what we deserve. He is a God of steadfast love. That is, he is patient. He is forbearing with us in spite of our many continual daily failures. He is this God of enduring, steadfast love uh, according to his promises. And these are from of old. The Lord has not changed. He's developed a pretty good track record when it comes to his character and his attributes. Verse 8, we learn this. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. The goodness of God uh, is especially seen as he instructs us on how to uh, find salvation. He instructs us. This is the God we worship is not a silent God. He, in fact, loves to communicate. The proverb says that wisdom actually is shouting from the rooftops. Our problem is, is that we are not paying attention. Our problem is, is we're not listening. Our problem is that we're easily, easily distracted and very much we would prefer to listen to other voices. But in fact, God is both good 
and he is upright. And in verse 10, we see this. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord does not change. And one of the ways that he demonstrates his steadfast love and faithfulness, one of the key ways, is he, uh, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. The Lord has provided his covenant. He has provided his testimonies. He's provided with us, actually, his mind. He's communicated it to us through his word, through the law of the Old Testament and through the the writings of, of the apostles within the New Testament. He's telling us all about what he is like. He is showing us, uh, in fact, how uh, we can draw near to him, how we can find a way out of the troubles um, and, and the difficulties that surround us. Well, indeed, these covenants and testimonies uh, uh, are, are found in our written scriptures. He is a God of mercy, of steadfast love, goodness, uprightness. He provides us what we need through the instruction of the scriptures. Off, uh, which are mediated and taught by the church. And for 25 years, that has been right at the heart of this church's mission to proclaim the, the, the full counsel of God, to f- proclaim the word of God, to try to penetrate all of the confusion um, of the surrounding world around us, equipping you with the full counsel of God, emphasizing who God is, and what he has done for us, especially what he has done for us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. One of the things we learn about God's covenant, his testimonies, is that they fix our, they point us to a savior. They point us to a redeemer, to the one who, uh, to the God who became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And in him, we learn that we find our soul's satisfaction, that we find the answers that we, in fact, need. In addition to the knowledge of God in his ways, we need to also understand the problem of sin. We need to understand and recognize our need for God's pardon. In verses 6 and 7, David writes, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. There's something that David wants God to remember and something that David does not want God to remember. David wants God to remember his mercy and his love. And that mercy and love anticipates the gift of his own son, the gift of Christ for the salvation of mankind, for our redemption. And in and through Christ, we find our pardon. We find our uh, forgiveness that we can be reconciled with the God who made us. And so when God uh, remembers his mercy and his grace, especially as it is given and shown to us through Jesus, he's able to forget, to remember not our, our sins and our iniquities, our failures, And this is something that David, here he is, probably a mature uh, man, uh, a believing man who loves God, and yet he has to keep coming back to the mercy of God found in the forgiveness he has. And now his forgiveness is looking forward to the Savior that God would send. Ours is looking backward to 
to the Savior that God has sent in the person of Jesus. And if we are going to continue to grow, not only do we need to remember who God is and what he's like, we need to remember, we need to preach to ourselves, the Lord has forgiven, fill in the blank. He has forgiven whatever it is that holds you back, whatever it is that the devil constantly is reminding you of and saying, oh, you know, you really can't serve God because of what you did or, or, or what you didn't do, whatever it may be. And the scriptures tell us that the mercies of God are so deep that he can actually forget our sins. It's not just that he doesn't hold them against us. He does not remember them. He does not bring them up against us ever again. And so, like David, we need to pray in verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. For David recognizes his guilt is great, for it is great, he says. And yet, and if God can forgive David, he can forgive uh, us as well. Moving from a church in trouble that needs to trust God, moving from our need for the truth of God and for God's pardon, well, this leads to this, this final movement, uh, the hope uh, that David has for himself and for the people of God. And he puts it this way, fear the Lord. There's an attitude that he is, um, uh, he is encouraging. He's enjoining upon himself and God's people. He says, fear the Lord and inherit the land. Well, uh, let's just talk about the attitude first, to fear God. Earlier, he, he also um, combines this with humility, okay? So he talks about both this, the need for humility, not seeing ourselves as better than others, humility in the sense that I need God, I need to put my trust in him, I can't save myself. That's biblical humility, along with this sense of, of awe and reverence for the Lord. The sense of, the Bible describes fear not in terms of being, you know, uh, like a fraidy cat, but, but, but a sense of the Lord is awesome. And I need to recognize and show reverence, do reverence for the glory and for the majesty of the God who made this world. And, and, and what David is showing us is that when we cultivate these attitudes of humility, and of, of this godly fear, that these then lead, surprisingly, a lot of people say, well, if you're like that, you're just going to, you know, give up. This is going to uh, discourage you. But in fact, that's not the case. In fact, David describes it as um, entering into the land. This is verses, well, verse 12, where he talks about fear. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will God instruct in the way that he should choose. And then verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Those who have a due regard, reverence, gratitude in their hearts for the Lord. Well, those are the ones who enjoy the friendship of God. And then the right sandwich in between these two verses, verse 13, David says, his soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. For the ancient Israelites, the land was this picture of God's kingdom coming in its power. The land of Canaan, 
typified. It was a picture, an illustration, an earthly illustration of a land of milk and honey, a land of, of abundance, of prosperity, where God himself, and this was the key thing about the land, it's where God himself dwelt. And the people could live in the very uh, presence of the Lord, in, in the presence of his joy and majesty and, and abundance. This is the land. Now, as we come to the New Testament, how do we understand this land? Well, we understand it in, in kind of two phases. There's what's known as the already and the not yet. The not yet is the world that comes when God makes all things new. He takes, takes, takes away all sin. He invites all those who have placed their trust and faith in him to enter into his eternal kingdom. This is a future reality that will not take place until Christ returns, uh, probably after most of us are, are long gone. But when Christ returns, he's going to set up a new heavens, a new earth, and this kingdom will come in power. But how does that affect us now? That's, you know, that's the important question, right? Um, not really, but it is an important question. What does the kingdom look like now? What does the land that God desires for his people look like now? The New Testament, just in one verse, the Apostle Paul writes, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom that we experience now is largely invisible. It is a spiritual kingdom, and it's a kingdom where we're learning to live justly. We're learning to live with integrity. We're learning to live with righteousness. Don't just think of, you know, individual purity, but, but just in, in just and right ways the kingdom begins to become visible. And it's a kingdom of joy because we're experiencing the blessing and the presence and the promises of God now. And it's a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of the Old Testament refers to as shalom. It's where there is growing wholeness. There is growing health among the people of God. It'll never be perfection this side of heaven. But it can be, you know, righteousness, uh, peace, and joy in the Spirit, because the Spirit abides among the people of God. And this is what we can aspire to in the present. We're not going to experience the full glory of the kingdom now, because even as we're experiencing that visible kingdom, we're also experiencing all the troubles (laughs) that David's talking about and that we're experiencing now, and that to some degree, every generation experiences. So how do you experience uh, righteousness, joy, and peace in the midst of adversity and troubles? See, that's the question, right? How do you do that? Well, the answer is this. It's not something that we can make humanly. It's not something we can conjure up out of our own strength and abilities. This is a gift of God, It is a sign of God's presence among his people that we can inhabit this kingdom, spiritually speaking, even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of pain and heartache and grief and loss, that there's still this part of us that knows genuine righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. 
And that's what the psalmist holds out before us as we learn to trust. It all goes back. What are you going to put your trust in? Place your trust in the Lord, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful for your many blessings among us. We are grateful for the way that you have provided the needs of this body year in and year out, day by day. We are grateful, Lord, for the truths that you have brought to us. We're grateful for the friendships and the fellowships. We're grateful for opportunities to serve and to be a part of your kingdom mission in this world in the present. And we are grateful, Lord, for the riches, the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, open our eyes more and more to those riches that we would enjoy, the the kingdom that is already present among us. Lord, may this church over the next 25 years continue to trust you and that we would enter the land of your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.